Well, I would ask that you would grab your Bibles and your outlines this morning and turn to John chapter 19. <clears throat> I usually don't like to apologize in a, uh, in a sermon, but I'm going to apologize. If you've come to hear a Palm Sunday, classic Palm Sunday message, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Uh, we spent uh, the last uh, over 40 weeks looking at the Gospel of John, and we dealt with Jesus' triumphal entry in about week or eight of that series. So we celebrated Palm Sunday sometime uh, last August, and uh, we're just going to live off the uh, glory and splendor of that uh, Sunday service. But today we begin a series that we've entitled Deliverance. Uh, last, or two weeks ago, we uh, finished our series out of the Gospel of John, uh, God in 3D. And, uh, well, we didn't get to the last uh, couple chapters of the uh, book of John, and we're going to be looking at those in a new series, the series called Deliverance. And for four weeks, we're going to look at uh, four ways that Christ delivers us. First of all, today we're going to learn that He delivers us from our suffering. Next, we're going to look at His deliverance from our sin. It will be on Easter Sunday. Then we'll look at Thomas and talk about how Jesus delivers us from our second guessing. And then we'll look to Peter and his restoration where we see Jesus delivering us from our... It's a fitting way to cap off a year-long series out of the Gospel of John. Well, many of you know, if you've read it in your history, some of you remember that day on December 7, 1941, the Japanese forces invaded and bombed U.S. Naval Station in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And the next day, December 8th, before both houses of Congress, President Roosevelt delivered a radio address. And he spoke of this event being a day that will live in infamy. Well, this word infamy, I wanted to find out what he meant by that. It means disgrace, dishonor, a day of great wickedness. Now, there's no one here who will deny that that day was, in fact, a day of great wickedness. We know that it led to thousands upon thousands of U.S. soldiers and Japanese soldiers and all kinds of civilians to lose their life all over the South Pacific. But we've had some other days of great infamy in our lives. I think of 9-11, September 11th, where we saw planes hit buildings in the Pentagon. We saw them crash into the grounds into the state of Pennsylvania. And then we remember with great uh, fear and trembling the moments that the Gulf Shore with Katrina and tens of thousands of lives lost as a result. And then who can forget the great tsunami that our world faced where nearly a quarter million people died as a result of one large wave crashing into land. All those are days of infamy. They're infamous days. But I will tell you, as we look back, 2,000 years ago, there is a day that lives and rings true as the greatest day of infamy. On that day, that great day of disaster, when it came to what God had had in His life come to place as He walked this earth, He knew this day was coming. And on that day, the creatures of this world took steps to kill their Creator. On that day, mankind raised a rebellious fist against God Almighty. On that day, the Son of God became the Lamb that was slain. And it had been prophesied that it would happen from the foundations of the world. 
My friends and family, the day that Jesus Christ was crucified is the most infamous day in the history of the world. And instead of looking at the triumphal entry of Christ on this Palm Sunday, I want to see Jesus as the Lamb that was slain. Today I want to see what Jesus did for you and me so that He might redeem us sinners in need of grace. Today I want to look at Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but not as He triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem, but while He hangs limply on the cross of Calvary. You see, when we consider that, we begin to understand why we should be so triumphant today. When we understand what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, we begin to understand why we should praise and worship the name of Jesus Christ. When we consider this Jesus who hung on that cross for our sins, we will consider why we ought to live differently than the world does. So today I want to look at the death of Christ and see what it means not only to those who do not believe, but also to us who do believe and what our response should be as a result. So I would ask that you would, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to John 19. And I want to watch for the next couple moments the Scriptures come to life as we look to a video of John 19 and then we'll go to our message this morning. So put your attention to the screen this morning. I know some don't like the gore, but I think this is a uh, time that it's appropriate to see what suffering our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ suffered. There are three things I want to look at in this text. With the time that I have left, I want to do a commentary, if you will, of John chapter 19. It's going to be heavy on information, but I pray that there will be some application through the information that is given. We see three things this morning that I want to look at. First of all, we see that the suffering of Christ involved rebukes and condemnation. It involved rebukes and condemnation. Now, when we look at John 19, we do not see a pretty picture. We don't hear Jesus preaching any sermons. We don't see His disciples hanging out with their teacher and their rabbi. We don't even see Jesus hanging out with people. We see this picture, Jesus versus the world. It's one of the most negative passages in all of the Scriptures, the darkest chapters in all the Bible. We see Jesus within this passage with His back against the proverbial wall with everyone trying to take their shots in at them. You know, I, I've felt like that at times and during certain days where the world is against me, but as I watch and read the Scriptures, I'm blown away by the sense that Jesus did have the world against Him. And as we begin to think about it, the question we always ask is, who is to blame for this? Well, the Gospel makes it very clear there are many to blame for the rebuke and condemnation of Christ. The first one is a group of ruthless men. Write that in your outlines. Ruthless men. We're introduced to uh, soldiers in verse 2. Now, these men had a specific job that they were to fulfill. Look at what it says in verse 1. They were to flog him. King James, and I believe one of the other translations says, scourge him. And we don't use flogging, this term flogging, a lot. So we need to understand what it means. The brutal act of flogging had three purposes. Number one, it was used to beat a prisoner as a way of punishment. Second, it was used to extract a confession from a prisoner. 
And third, in cases of crucifixion like that of Christ, it was used to weaken the victim so that the crucifixion would not take too long. As a tool of extracting a confession, what would happen is the Roman soldier would beat and beat and beat the prisoner until he would cry out whatever he was holding back. But folks, let us never forget that those beatings never ceased because Jesus had nothing to confess. They just kept beating him and beating him. A man by the name of Edwards said flogging was a legal preliminary to Roman execution. In fact, flogging was not to be used on women. It was not to be used on Roman senators or soldiers, except if a soldier deserted the army. This was for the worst of worst. In regards to the crucifixion, the goal of the scourging or the flogging was to create a broken down state of an individual as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the back of Jesus with full force. The iron balls at the end of uh, the straps would come and cause deep bruising on the back and on the sides of Jesus. And then there were leather straps and sheep were broken. That as the whip would go, it would grab a part of Jesus' side or his back and rip flesh off. I don't say this for a fact, but this is what historians say the nature of flogging was. So what it would produce on a human being would be ribbons of skin with flesh and bone showing. As a result of this flogging, pain and blood loss generally set the victim into shock as a result. The severe scourging they have had would have brought incredible pain and incredible blood loss, most likely leaving Jesus in, if not a serious state of health, but maybe even critical as well. And with the lack of food, the lack of water, and the lack of sleep, it would have also contributed to Jesus being almost as good as dead. Therefore, even if crucifixion ever took place, we see that Jesus is beyond appearance of any man. But look at what it says in verse 2. It says not only did they beat him, but it says that they placed a crown of thorns on his head and they put a robe around him. Now why would they do such a thing? They wanted to mock his claim at being the king of the Jews. And now this was something that happened numerous times. In fact, one of the historical writers, Philo, in his work on Flaccus, writes this. He says, in Alexandria, the mob used to play a game with idiots and imbeciles. And what they would do is they would gather them and dress them up like a king. And then they would mock him. They would sit him down and they would pretend to worship him. You see, during that day, this was a game of fun. They would go and they would find someone who, who maybe seemed out of their mind and they would have fun with the individual. And they'd say, hey, you're our king. Ha, ha, ha. We worship you. And they would mock him. That's why they did what they did with Jesus. So the soldiers begin to play this game, pretending that Jesus is king. But oh, the irony. I can't imagine what those soldiers will think on the day of judgment. When they stand before that Jesus, the one they beat, and the one they mocked and said, the king of the Jews... In Matthew 27:30 it tells us they didn't just do this but they walked by him and they spat upon him they pulled out his beard and they punched him 
in the face. That's just one group of people, the ruthless men. There's a second group of just leaders. The second group of people involved, John tells us, are the chief priests and the officials. We know from the Scriptures that these are the first to call for Christ's crucifixion. These are the ones who declare hypocritically and through lying teeth saying that they have only one king and that one king is Caesar. King was, uh, Caesar was never their king and they desired nothing more than for Rome to be out of their lives once and for all. These are the ones that take Jesus under arrest under false pretenses. These are the men that want Jesus dead and they will not stop until Pilate gives the yes as his answer. They're involved. But they're also involved in inciting a riot with the people and causing the people to desire that Christ would be crucified. But next we see not only ruthless men and religious leaders, but there was also a ruler involved. I don't mean something that you would measure, but I'm talking about a political ruler. His name was Pilate. In John 19, verse 1, we see this name Pilate. And all throughout chapter 18, we see this man Pilate. Now, history tells us that Pilate was the pro... Uh, I'm going to try the word now. It's in my notes, and I apologize. I've got a headache going on right now, so bear with me. Uh, in John, uh, or history tells us that Pilate had been in power for ten years over all of Judea. And so what Pilate was doing was he was as if the governor. He would uh, only answer to Caesar. And he would go and he'd say, this is how your province of Judea is doing. And he was responsible of all the things that happened in Judea. But we learned some things about Pilate. Write this down. First of all, we learned he was a coward. He was a coward. As we see his dealings with the Jews. Remember, Pilate had ultimate authority. The only one who could tell Pilate what to do would be Caesar back in Rome. And yet, what does he do? He finds himself falling prey to the pushing and the lobbying of the chief priests and the chief leaders of that day. He's unable to stand strong. But then we see kind of a schizophrenia going on because he goes from being a coward to being a cruel leader. Write that down. He was cruel. And you say, Tim, how do you know that he was cruel? Numerous times in our text, it tells us that Pilate found no fault in Jesus. But what does he do? He has him beaten. What leader would take an innocent man and beat him to an inch of his life? That's the cruel nature of who Pilate was. For his own sake and for his own gain politically, he figured, I'll beat the living snot out of Jesus, pardon my French, and what I will do is that will appease the Jews and the chief priests and leaders. He was afraid, but then there was a cruel side with him as well. But then we see him interact and there's a curiosity There's a curiosity to this man, Pilate. Now, this curiosity isn't found to be one of a seeker, but it is one who has some just kind of, well, what's going on? Am I a part of something a little bigger? We know that his wife comes and says, I've had these dreams about this man, Jesus. Don't get involved in this situation. There's something bigger going on here. And there's this curiosity that's building in the life of Pilate. But you know what? With all the power and all the curiosity and all the authority that he had, instead of letting Jesus go, what does he do? He hands him over to Jesus' enemies. We see another thing, another person involved. In verse 18 of John 19, we see that there is a robber involved. There's robbers. 
Now we're told in verse 18 that Jesus was crucified between two men. In Luke 23, 39, we're told that these men were thieves. They were robbers. In fact, look at what, or listen to what it says in Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals uh, who hung uh, there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Think about that for a moment. Here, they're hanging on the cross. This guy's about to die. But out of his depravity, he sits there and reviles and hurls insults to the guy hanging next to him. And it's an amazing showing of selfishness and pride. Why? Because look at what he says. As he's insulting, he says, save yourself. But don't forget to save us as well. We see after the robbers, there's a riotous mob. A riotous mob. In Luke 23, verses 21 through 23, they kept shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! For the third time, He spoke to them. Why? This is Pilate speaking. What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, listen to what he does, I will have him punished and release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. I want you to bear in mind, that mob that you saw on the screen, many of them were a part of the same mob, like these children that came up at the beginning of the service that were waving palm branches and saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, loud Hosanna. Isn't that amazing what a week can do to the life of men and women? The same group that cheered, we're now jeering and asking that Christ be crucified. But Pilate gives them a chance. We see in John 18.40 that the leaders lead the people to ask not for the life of Jesus, to have Him back, but they ask for this man Barabbas, which means son of a rabbi. And this Barabbas was an insurgent. He was a rebel. And what happened is, is they say, you know what? We would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. What a picture of our depravity as human beings. Here Jesus is. And we could have Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of both the heavens and the earth, the Sustainer, the second person of the Trinity. And what does the mob choose? They choose Barabbas, a thug, a lowlife. You know, there's some great things we can learn about that. As human beings, because of our sin, we will find out a couple things about this mob that we'll learn about ourselves. Number one, we will always choose a fraud instead of the real deal. When we have the choice of Jesus, we're always going to choose in our own carnality something other than Jesus. Second, we're going to see that as a result of that, at heart, we are people of rebellion. Who did they choose? They could have chose a man who healed the sick who raised the dead, who gave uh, a walking ability to those that were paralyzed. He, they could have gotten back Jesus, the one who fed the 5,000 and 4,000 at a later time. But who do they ask for? An insurgent, a terrorist in their day. Why? Because we live a double life. While we in our mouths on Sunday say we love Jesus and hail Jesus, when the rubber meets the road, we say, give us something else. 
We don't want him. Next, we see one final group, and that is all the regular people. All the regular people. Now you'd say, Tim, why are you talking about all these people? What does it do for me? What do I do with this on Monday? Let me tell you something. Within all of these people, we could blame and we could point our fingers and debate after debate has been done about who killed Jesus. The answer, first of all, is God placed His Son on that cross. But who was really involved in it? All of those men and women that I just talked about, but also you and me. You know, our sin was what placed Jesus on that cross. God would not have had to have had before the foundations of the earth a plan of redemption had He not in His uh, plan known that we would fall to sin and need a Savior. So why did the cross happen? The cross came because we needed someone to be sin on our behalf. Why did the cross happen? The cross happened because of us regular people of sin. You say, well, I didn't beat Jesus. I didn't spit upon Jesus. No, you may not have done that. You may not have put the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. I think it's amazing if you don't know, if you've seen the passion of Jesus Christ. Mel Gibson, he's all over the place, I know. But I think he got it right. When the time came when, he was gonna, when they were going to hammer the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, Mel Gibson said, that's my part. I want to be the hands that put those spikes into his hands and his feet. And if you remember, of course, you see that. And those are Mel Gibson's hands in the movie. That's a truth that we must understand. It wasn't some Roman soldier that did it. It was every sin that we have had, every amount of disobedience, was that hammer going into that nail, into the hands and feet of our Savior. But I didn't do that, you say. No. What we've done is when we were supposed to be articulating the good news of Christ, we're silent. When we're supposed to show the strength of Christ, we're weak. When we're supposed to stand for Christ, we find ourselves moving behind the lockers at school or behind the water cooler at work. And during those times, it's those sins and that fear and that desertion that put Christ on the cross. But today we stand and we sing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us not be like that. Let us cry with the same voice and the same song on Sunday, the same that we will say on Monday. Once we understand that this involved rebukes and condemnation, it doesn't end there. But it continues on. We see the suffering of Jesus resulted in a crucifixion. It resulted in a crucifixion. These verses give us but a brief account of Jesus' time that He spent on the cross. Now listen, John doesn't give us much detail about what happens in the crucifixion. In fact, in verse 18, look at what it says. They crucified Him. It doesn't talk about much more than that they crucified Him. Now the other Gospel writers give us some more elements to it. And from that and from history of what both biblical, excuse me, and secular uh, historians tell us, is that first of all, the crucifixion was painful. It was painful. We need to realize what Christ did and how He suffered for us. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. As I just kind of read from my notes, I want you to close your eyes and imagine for a moment what Jesus went through. Imagine for a moment being whipped, being beaten, being spat upon, 
Everywhere you go, your near naked body is revealed to all people. And you're called a fool and a fraud as they punch you and kick you. Imagine a long walk up a stony path carrying a heavy cross on your back as that, the uh, splinters of that cross enter into your wounds that you've been beaten, that have come. Then imagine once you get up to that hill, up to where you would be placed on that cross, you're placed on that wooden cross with long iron spikes driven through your hands and your feet. Then imagine hanging on that cross for six hours after you've been beaten and whipped by a band of soldiers. And only just a couple of your friends, your mom and a friend of hers, and one of your followers is there to watch. What would your sense be at that moment? That's what Jesus struggled through. You can open your eyes. I will tell you that the crucifixion, the act of executing a prisoner by crucifying them on the cross was even by Josephus's terms, a historian of the first century who is not a Christian, said that the crucifixion was the most horrible way for a person to die. It was bad. There's no word that would be able to comprehend it. Because what would happen is when a person was nailed to the cross, as they nailed uh, the hands into the, the wrist is what it would have been, what would happen is, is those spikes would hit the median nerve. I don't know if any of you have ever had back trouble or a herniated disc. The um, sciatic nerve is so much more dull in comparison to the median nerve in your wrist. So what would happen is, is he's hanging there, spasms of nerve pain would shoot through his body. But then he also had his feet in some way uh, nailed to the cross as well. So he's sitting here and he's completely drawn out. We've seen the pictures. But what would happen is, is at this point you cannot breathe with your body hanging on a cross. So what would happen? What he'd have to do is press on the spike that was holding his feet and lift up his body to be able to breathe, to allow the diaphragm to contract and be able to give air to his body. Six hours Jesus did this for every breath. What would you choose, the pain or the amount of time to be able to breathe? So what does he do? For six long hours he does that, but the body beaten and abused, and having to do that, he dies of exhaustion after six hours on that cross. Blood loss, dehydration, exhaustion. He finally just suffocated to death. Jesus died a horrible and painful death. Let us never forget that. I'm going to share later, but just for a moment. You know, we stay away from these types of sermons. We say, oh, let's just tell people about how to fix their marriages and, and how to help their children. And we never talk about the cross. That old rugged cross. I am progressive in my thinking, but let us never forget what Christ did. You know, the amazing thing is it took a guy that's got some weird beliefs when it comes to Mel Gibson, some crazy beliefs. It took him to put front and center the cross of Jesus. Where are us as Christians? Where is the church? We don't want to talk about this. Blood makes people uneasy. Well, blood, that uneasy blood that you are worried about is what saved 
you and me. Second, we see this crucifixion fulfilled prophecy. It fulfilled prophecy. Look at verses 24 and then look at verses 36. Look at verse 36. It tells us that these things happened so that the words of the prophets would be fulfilled, that they would be uh, the, that w- that which was foretold would come to fruition. Now, as we look at them, I want to look at ten very quickly as a result of time. Ten signs that we see that are foretold that come to fruition. And the reason why this is so important is, first of all, the fulfilled prophecies first validate that Jesus is the Savior. He's the one that the prophets were speaking of. He is the one that Isaiah and Ezekiel, Joel and all the minor prophets and Moses and all those were talking about. And all those pictures and types that we see in the Old Testament that would find their fulfillment, it was in Jesus. But there's a second thing that we must understand. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ did not happen by accident. But it was a part of God's divine and sovereign plan. And it happened just as He had planned it before the foundations of the earth. He said this is how it would be. That we're told that Jesus would be led to be crucified in the King James it says that they, in six, verse 16, would lead him away, or he'd be led away. Now, according to historians, crucifixion was so terrifying, it was so horrific, that it was customary for a victim who is about to be crucified to run and to fight his whole way to the cross. But you don't see anywhere where Jesus panicked. You don't see or hear anything about Jesus trying to run away. Or Jesus screaming and saying, I don't want to do it. Get away from me. I've had enough. I don't want to go there. But it never says they dragged him away or drove him away. They led him. They took him and led him. It means he willfully, without resistance, followed. Well, you say, how does that become prophetic? In Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, And without any knowledge of crucifixion, hadn't been invented yet, it would be like Shakespeare talking about the electric chair. Hadn't been there yet. Isaiah says he'd be brought as a lamb to the slaughter. You know, you drive cattle, you drive horses, but a lamb follows. Jesus was led to the cross of Calvary. Next, we see that he was hurried to his death. This is seen in the swiftness of his trial and execution. You must understand that there were civil liberties back in the day of Rome. That if you were convicted of a crime that demanded execution or capital punishment, there was, like the NRA, a two-day waiting period. And what would happen is, is that they would go and they'd say, alright, Tim is going to be crucified. But we won't do it today on Sunday, but we'll wait till Tuesday to do it. Why? Because there may be a chance that someone may come and say the crime that Tim committed... It's not the case. He's innocent. There's an evidence that proves it. But what do we see in the life of Jesus? We see that within one night, in a matter of two hours from the moment that he has been told that he's committed this crime and told that he'll be executed, that same day he is hung on a cross. It didn't happen back in that day, except with Jesus Next, we see that he suffered outside the city. 
John 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now this is shown in showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sin offering that is shared about in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus. And what would happen is, is during the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, what would happen is, is they would go and sacrifice the animal outside the city. And then they would bring just the blood of that animal into the Holy of Holies and present it as an offering. But look at what it says in verse uh, 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to. Well, where did he go from? From Jerusalem, the city. And he went out to the place of the skull. Jesus was the final sin offering for us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 and 12, it says, The high priest's blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But listen to what it says. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through His blood. Next we see after that, He was crucified. Crucifixion looks like what would happen is you were either placed on some sort of tree or some sort of wood structure bearing the resemblance of what we have now as crosses. And He would be lifted up. He would be placed in the ground and He would be lifted up for all to see Him die. And Jesus talked about this. He said in John 3, verse 14 and 15, before great John 3.16 is shared. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, he's telling this, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now what's this just as Moses lifted up? If you don't know your Old Testament very well, in the wilderness the children of Israel are rebelling against God, and God sends these brood of vipers, these snakes come, and they start biting the Israelites. And the Israelites are crying because they're seeing their family be decimated by these snakes. And Moses goes to God and says, don't wipe out your people, God. What can we do? What we, we were sorry for our sin. Help us in our time of need. And God says, okay, take a snake, put it on a big tall pole, and hold it before the people. And anybody by faith who looks to that staff will be healed. Jesus was that serpent, if you will that was placed on a great pole so that all by faith would now have the wrath of God taken away from them. As they gazed to that cross, they would be saved. Next we see in verse 18, He was crucified with two thieves. Isaiah 53.9 says that not only was he, assigned, or he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, says He's going to die with wickedness around Him. In Isaiah 53.12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And it says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And then we know that one of the transgressors came to know Jesus in a saving faith kind of way. And look at what, listen to what it says in Isaiah 53.12, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. A prophecy that's fulfilled. Next we see a prophecy about His garment. In John 19, 23 and 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took His clothes, dividing them into four shares, one, of e one for each of them, with an undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot, by dice, who will get it. This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled when it says, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. That's a prophecy if you want to write it in your Bibles from Psalm 22:18. Next we see in verse 33, His bones weren't broken. Remember, that crucifixion, they wanted the crucifixion to end before night because Passover, or I'm sorry, the Sabbath day was coming. And as a result of that, they said they want to get this thing done. So they went and they would break the legs to hurry the death along. But when they get to Jesus, He's already dead. And what a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would be the Passover Lamb. Listen to one of the requirements for the Passover Lamb. They must not leave any of it till morning. Or break any of its bones. And then, of course, in Psalm 34.20, speaking of Jesus, it says that He protects all His bones and not one of them will be broken. They do. It says they pierced Him with a spear. In John 19.34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Zechariah 12, 10, 400 years before Christ says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication that they will look on me, the one whom they've pierced. We're told that his burial would happen. It's foretold, in, or it's told in John 19, 38, later Joseph of Arimathea as Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And in Isaiah 53.9, it says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And finally, one the one that I love the most, Psalm 69.21, tells us that Jesus would thirst. And it tells us the drink that will be given. And it says in Psalm 69:21, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. John 19:28-29. Later, knowing that all was completed, and so Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, "I am thirsty." A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, a sponge in it, and put the sponge on a stalk, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. I tell you all this. Not because I don't think most of you already know them, but to bring them to our remembrance. We don't, by faith, sit there and say, well, I think Jesus did this, you know, I'm not sure how, and I don't know if there's any real record. Don't let anybody tell you that. Isaiah and the prophets talked about this Jesus, and with the utmost clarity said not only how He would live, but how He would die. Now, for those that like probability and there are 332 specific prophecies about Jesus. And all of those were fulfilled in Jesus' life and death. William Hendrickson, one of the great commentators, said this, If that is the case, then that probability for all of those to come to pass in Jesus' life would be 1 in 84, let me stop there, 1 in 84 with 100 zeros after it. There's not even a word for that kind of number. That's where kids come up with the gazillions and the jajillions and all that. Put your word in there. 1, 84 with 100 
zeros. Al likes those kinds of numbers, I'm sure. And you know what? To the letter, every one of those came to pass. We see that this final aspect of this crucifixion pays the penalty for our sin. You know, the cross, the cross is the great symbol of Christianity. It is at the cross we find forgiveness. It is at the cross where we find love. It is at the cross where we find God's wrath turned away. Yet we do not speak about it that much. In evangelical churches today, the cross is a thing that is neglected. You know, it's amazing. We could have talked about the triumphal entry, which is in a powerful and amazing day in church history and the Christian life. And there would be a good amount of people here, even though I think we're down a little bit for attendance today. And then we'll come back next Sunday and we'll pack this place because we, it's Easter. But we'll get a hundred or so that will come to the Good Friday service on Friday. The cross has lost its place. I've seen whether at my work or at home. Three invitations from churches. You're going to get a lot of them. And one of them, and I don't like telling where they're from or anything like that. I don't want to point any fingers, but I am grieved as a Christian when there's more about Easter eggs than there is about our Savior dying on the cross. And let me, let me tell you, I don't have a problem with Easter eggs. They better be way down the list after the cross and all those things. You put the Easter bunny way at the letter Z, don't put them at A. And I've seen from churches, evangelical churches, that say they believe in all this stuff. And they say, come for our Easter egg hunt and come and maybe we'll tell you about how we can make your life better. No, tell them about the cross. That's the only thing that saves us. The Easter bunny isn't going to save you. The Easter eggs aren't going to save you. The cross saves you. That yucky, icky blood that we don't want to talk about is the only thing that will repair your marriage, that will take care of your kids like you want them to. That blood will be the only thing that will bring your life back into perspective. And better than all that, that blood will be the only thing on the day of judgment that you will say, I have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to my life. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Another hymn writer wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean in Jesus' name. Don't let us ever forget that that crucifixion is what paid the penalty for our sin. Third point, and I'm closing this thing out because I'm losing my voice. The suffering of Jesus next involved a remarkable conquest. I know I've spent a lot on the technical, a lot of time there, but I must remember the pain and suffering. And some may say, you've dampened my Palm Sunday, and that's okay. Because I will tell you, we do not need here another chipper message that talks about how cheerful we should be in Christ. But we need ones that will preach about the blood. There's a time for cheer. Next week, a time for cheer. But let us meditate this week at cross and what it means for us. We need to understand, first of all, this conquest by Christ involved the cry. Look at verse 30. Jesus said, it is finished. It's an Aramaic word. And it's used for many different aspects of life. I want to share them with you quickly. So that you know what this meant. Because this was a cry of a victor. Notice, please notice, that Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. This word, it is finished, 
was used by his servant to tell his master, it's completed. Jesus was telling his father, it's done. When it was used by a priest, it meant that it was a sacrificial animal that was examined and found worthy. Jesus was the worthy lamb that was slain. In the farmer's words, it would be used when an animal was born that could be used as a sacrifice without blemish. Jesus Christ had no blemish within him. It was used by an artist when he had applied the finishing touches to a masterpiece, and it meant nothing more could be done. When Jesus died on the cross, he was saying, you don't have to add anything to it. It is the most beautiful portrait this world will ever see. And my favorite one, it was done in the business world. This term, it was finished, was used by a merchant and a customer as they haggled over the price. And they'd go back and forth and say, no, I want this amount. No, I want this amount. And finally, when a determined amount was decided, they would both look to each other and say, it is finished. When Christ looked to his father, he said, the blood that was shed is enough. It is the perfect price for the sin of sinners like you and me. What a word. It is finished. One that should be contemplated. One that should be thought about often. One that should be recognized and exalted. It is finished. But what does that mean? One final thing or one element we see of that is that it means it was complete. This crucifixion was complete. Now this is of great importance because if we don't think that our price has been paid for sin, then we're going to try to live a life of works as a result to attain that. It said Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. One difference we have with our friends and family is that we believe that once and for all, Jesus died on the cross. Our Catholic friends and family will say every time they go to church at the Mass, they celebrate once again the death of Jesus Christ. By in, and if you read their doctrine, by putting Jesus back on that cross and having Him shed the blood. But we go to God's Word and we see uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that says, When this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know what that means? Don't try to appease God anymore. Just follow Him. Don't try to seek His approval, but believe on His name and rely on His love and forgiveness. But there's one final thing we need to know, and that is that this crucifixion has an element to it that is to be continued. It's to be continued. Look at verse 1 of John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Today we focus in on the death and burial of Jesus Christ. But next Sunday we come and we do not rejoice in a, sin, uh, a Savior who uh, is dead. We don't celebrate a martyr like other religions do. But we serve and we exalt high the name of Jesus who is resurrected from the grave. And it is with great anticipation as a result of what Jesus has done for you and for me that we can come and rejoice. But understand this, you cannot rejoice in the empty tomb until you've remembered the cross. You cannot find joy and peace and contentment in the empty tomb until you find repentance and a willingness to turn from sin at that cross. Let's pray. Father God, I come before You. 
And I praise You for what You've done. I praise You for what You've done on the cross of Calvary. For coming to die for a sinner like me. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never trusted You as their Savior, Father, I pray that they would come. And come to that cross where there's forgiveness, where there's hope, and where we can find eternal life. Father, I pray that that in that moment that You promise You will save us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And for those, Father, that know You already, Father, I pray that we would never shy away from lifting up this chapter on the cross. That we would never forget the price that was paid and the healing grace that was shared to us. Father, I pray that as we resonate on this thought, that it would bring a response of joy and triumphant rejoicing as we gather next week, as we proclaim the risen Savior, Jesus. In His name and in only His name we pray all things. Amen.